Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Lisa Bilyeu is the co-founder of the billion-dollar company Quest Nutrition and co-founder and president of Impact Theory. She is the host of Women of Impact, a show featuring women who have overcome incredible hardship to achieve massive success. And today, she's here to chat about her new book titled Radical Confidence, 10 No BS Lessons on Becoming the Hero of Your Own Life. Lisa, welcome. Hey, Jason. So great to have you. Congrats on the book. And look, you certainly didn't need to write a book, but you did. And the book's amazing. And let's start with your personal journey, which led you to writing this book. Yeah, so um, there's such a huge myth that we need confidence to have the life we want. And so many people kept turning to me saying, I wish I had your confidence in order to have the life I want. And it started to really dawn on me that A, people think of confidence as being the magic source, that once you get it, everything's going to be okay. And then the other thing is that you have to wait to get it in order to make that first step. And for me, it wasn't like that at all. For me, it was, I had been a stay-at-home wife for eight years. I'd supported my husband. And it's really important for me to say that being a stay-at-home wife just wasn't my dream. So it's not about the job itself. It was every single day for eight years, I felt like I, I was living someone else's life. I was serving my husband. I was serving his goals and his dreams. And I never thought that I had the confidence to speak up and let him know that I wasn't happy. And what I realized was, is that confidence isn't the end goal. So when people say to me, I want confidence, I usually ask, you want confidence to do what? You want confidence to tell your boss you want the pay rise. You want confidence to tell your partner you're not happy. You want the confidence to. So I realized that they're using confidence as a tool. And that was when it really hit me that my journey from a stay-at-home wife supporting my husband for eight long years to then building Uh, co-founding Quest Nutrition and Impact Theory and hosting my own show and now writing this book, it was the fact that I didn't wait for confidence. I used a set of tools, but I was still freaking scared, but I just did it anyway. And that's what ultimately, as I was writing the book, it was like, that's what it's about. It's about radical confidence. It's not about waiting for something. It's about being scared being insecure, having all the nerves, having all the, you know, not having the skill sets that you may need, but taking the tools in order to take that first step and eventually living the life you actually want. So that's kind of how I came full circle on the, that being the main theme, because I really want people to really get unstuck. And it's like, what is that thing that gets them to be shaken awake? Most people, it's the rock bottom. You know, as you know, like I have my own show and I I interview so many incredible women that have massive successes. And I always ask them, like, where did it start? And usually it comes from they hit rock bottom. So there was nowhere else to go. And for me, I never did, which is why I think I lived eight years of being stuck and pausing my life. So that's really what the book is for. The people that live in what I call purgatory, the mundane. (laughs) I love that. We toss around the word confidence all the time. Hear so many times you got to build confidence, you've got to get confidence. <laughs> and I think it's so important to get to the why. 
And so how do you think about confidence in general, building off of what you just said, you know, building confidence, getting confidence, need more confidence. Mm -hmm. What are we getting so wrong? And it's one thing to say, all right, you got to build confidence. Well, that's sometimes easier said than done. So what are we getting wrong about this whole pick? It is confidence is critical, but what are we getting so wrong? Yeah, I think it goes back to the fact that we're using it as the end goal. I just want to be confident. And so we get stuck on that. But it's like someone saying, I just want to be happy. Right. Wouldn't you, if someone said, I just want to be happy, wouldn't you say, okay, well, what does that mean to you? What does happiness look like to you? So we get stuck on, I just want to feel confident, but it's not the end goal. And so when I say, like, let's take, for instance, me public speaking. So, so many people, they say public speaking is like the most feared thing, even like before death, which it just goes to put in perspective how frightening public speaking is. So for me, I want, I had a goal of creating impact. And so my husband and I, we brought impact theory as that part, as part of that. Then I started to get people reaching out, wanting me to public speak. And I was very fearful. I was so scared that I was like, there's no way I'm going to do it. There's no way I'm going to do it. I don't have the confidence yet to get up on stage. But what I realized was, is that the confidence to get on stage wasn't the end goal. The end goal was getting on stage. And so I said, okay, I'm focused on the wrong thing. I'm so worried and I'm so focused on, but I don't have the confidence yet that I wasn't getting started. So what if I just got started? And to your point, it's one thing to say, well, just be confident to get on stage when it's so different to actually step on stage. So I actually pushed out the word confidence from my vocabulary. And I said, what does it, because I've already assessed the end goal isn't to feel confident to get on stage. The end goal is to get on stage because it aligns with my goal. Okay, so if you have a goal and if you have something that aligns with that goal that you're fearful of, I want everyone right now to stop thinking, how do I get confident to do it? And start saying, how do I step on stage? Now lay out a game plan. Because to your point, I'm just going to keep repeating. It's such a difference to say, I want to be confident. Or you don't have to be confident to do it. And then actually doing it. So I laid out a game plan. Okay, what are the things that I know in my toolbox that I can use when I don't have the confidence to get me on stage. So first of all, the first step was just say yes. I was so scared to even accept an offer. So I had a rule. The next, the very next person that reaches out to me, just say yes. Because I know that if I wait to feel confident to say yes, it won't happen. So that was my rule. Step number one, say yes to the next person who asks. The next person who happened to ask was TEDx. So I just said yes blindly. And then I started to panic. But I'm like, the good news is I've already said yes. And now I deal with the panic. And now I go, okay, Lisa, coach your way through it. First of all, number one, this is your first time getting on stage. Give yourself grace to be the first time getting on stage. We all want to be perfect. We all want to do something so amazingly. We want the accolades that we don't give ourselves the padding or the grace to say, this is your first time. Take a baby, for instance. The very first time a baby eats with their hands, they don't get it straight in their mouth, right? They get it on their foot. They get it in their eye, you know? So all these things, instinctually, yes, we know that as a kid, but for some reason, as adults, we just don't think like that. So I repeat to myself, the first day you went, the first day you went to film school, did you know everything? Were you going to expect yourself to be as good as Spielberg? No, because it's my first day. So with speaking, I gave myself the grace. Lisa, as long as you get up stage and speak, that I'm proud of you. So I didn't hold myself to like, oh, you're going to be as good as Oprah. You're going to be as good as Brene Brown. 
I just said, get on stage and do the talk. So that encouraged me enough to now go, okay, I'm not going to back out. Now, how do I actually physically get on stage? I use tools to my advantage. So first of all, I use music. How do I want to feel? Let's face it, when you're sad, most people go to like a Sam Smith song, right? Because when you're sad, that sad song actually just feels good. So we all know music has an ability to change our emotions. So now how am I going to use that to change the emotion to feel how I want to feel? So I need to go on stage. What's going to motivate me? What's my hype song? There's a reason why everyone else, you know, like in WrestleMania, when you come out of the tunnel, there's a big song going, right? It gets you in the mood. So it's like, I want your audience to think right now, what is their hype song? What is that song that they have to go to that is really easy for them to play? I had my AirPods and I played that on repeat as I was gearing up. I also use things like my hair, like Wonder Woman dresses for battle, you know, superhero puts on their cape. And the reason I use this language is to soften the fear that I actually have about going on stage. So I change the language. I say, what is my cape I can put on, right? Makes me more lighthearted. I then look at actually what is going to make me feel sexy and dominant. And so I just go into my wardrobe and this is an individual thing and it's a trial and error, but don't negate the power of clothes and fashion and style. So I go into my wardrobe and over time I've realized, uh, can I swear on this podcast? <laughs> yeah, of course. Okay. So I went into my closet and I was like, all right, what is the, the outfit that makes me feel like a badass? And I pulled out my bad bitch boots and my bad bitch boots and knee high leather boots. And it's just every time I put them on, I feel sexy. Every time I put them on, I get gain confidence. I gain an element of power. And so I go, why am I ignoring this? Go on stage with your freaking bad bitch boots. So I have my bad bitch boots ready. And then there are little things that I do gearing up to it. So I know that I'm going to be fearful. How do I keep this um, motivation and the mindset strong? So I set an alarm. It's what I call a, you got this roulette. So I typed in you got this. That's just my phrase with a little like muscle emoji. And I close my eyes and I spin my alarm time. And I don't know what time I've set it for. And I just press save. So now what happens is at random moments for the next two weeks, I'll get a notification on my phone at random times that just says you got this. So subliminal messaging, we all know subliminal messaging works. So use it to our advantage. So as you can see, I've got all these little tools that just get me to actually step on stage. So I can't, so I don't get in my own head of the negative chatter that is just repeating over and over because I know I can let that negative chatter in my head absolutely paralyze me. And so now what I've done, those are just some tools that I've just got a game plan. I've got a blueprint so that I'm not worried about, am I confident to get on stage? I just focus on do I have my cape on? Have I got my mindset right? Am I listening to my hype song? And then I get on stage. I love it. I love it. And you touched on mindset and mindset is everything, especially when one is looking to accomplish any goal, no matter how small, no matter how big, no matter how insane. So you talk about mindset in the book. Can you talk about the power of, of mindset and how we should be thinking about incorporating mindset into our everyday lives. Yeah, mindset, like you just said, is everything. And when I feel a certain way, I can't trust my feelings. That's the truth. 
sometimes they're going to lead me astray. Sometimes my feelings are going to, you know, take me away with them. I've just interviewed too many female hormone doctors and things like that to think that you're going to be the same every day. Like your hormones fluctuate that then impact the days that you're more confident than others. So what are the things that I can lean on? It is mindset. So I rely on my mindset to keep me equal, to be able to make decisions with clarity and not get steered by my emotions or the fear of things. So I believe, I truly believe that if you say something is impossible, you're never going to find a way to make it possible. But if you use the word, I will find a way to make it possible, it just sets you up for a different mind frame. And that mind frame then dictates how you act. And so even if something actually ends up being impossible, at least you've explored it. So with Quest, let's just take Quest for example. Everybody said the bar couldn't be made. All experts, people who had been in the protein bar industry for 10, 20 years, all turned to us and said, the protein bar can't be made. There's a reason why this bar doesn't exist, because it can't be made. We heard it left, right, and center. There was even somebody who we very much respected in the health space, very much respected. And they turned around to us and they said, you know, there's about 1,500 bars on the market. The world needs another protein bar like it needs a hole in, it, in the head. Now, going back to mindset, if we believed it wasn't possible, just like everybody else, we wouldn't have started it. But the fact that we believe that we would find a way, it's not like mindset isn't about blind belief. It's not about saying, I know what I'm doing. It's about saying, even though I'm going to fall on my face time and time again, I will get back up. Even though this is very difficult, I will find a way. Even though there's an obstacle, I will grab something to knock that obstacle down. That when you find issues and problems, you will find a way around it, over it, or smash the obstacle. But that you won't just stop. And that's what mindset is. It's not about saying, I got this. I know what I'm doing. I'm amazing. It's about saying, I have no idea what I'm doing, but you better believe I'll figure it out. And that's what happened with Quest. And we took Quest from zero to a billion dollars in five years. Wow. And I, and I hear you, what you're describing is the life of an entrepreneur. And, you know, look, look what you've built with Quest is extraordinary. And I think... Now more than ever, there are so many people who want to become entrepreneurs who are passionate. And the reality is not everyone succeeds. And I'm curious, what do you think, you know, mindset is obviously on the list, but what do you think separates those who succeed and those who don't when it comes to being an entrepreneur and starting a business? Yeah, I think it really is. I'm personally able to set my emotions aside for the greater good. And what I mean by that is I used to live in a life of absolute fear, worried what people say, the judgment of others, will I be liked, people pleasing, not wanting to feel insecure, not wanting to be undermined, so not wanting to put myself in any situation where people around me were, were sm smarter, better or stronger than me because it would make me feel worse about myself. All of that held me back. And the, there were so many lessons that I learned, but if I had to encompass it, it really is that when I think about what I, stopped me from trying, it was the fear of failing, the fear of someone thinking I was no good, the fear of being judged. So when I look at the word fear and how I show up now every day with fear, it really is a learn from 
the experience, no matter how fearful it may be. Because there has been, and I know it's not, I still feel the sting. The fear that I encompass, it still can become very loud. And so I say, how on earth do I not let it stop me? And I go, okay, with whatever I'm about to enter, how can I learn from it? Again, it doesn't mean that it doesn't sting like hell. It doesn't mean that I'm not sometimes heartbroken over it, but it means I don't let it stop me. And that if you can change your perspective from the fear of failing into an opportunity, like honestly, it has changed my life. And I don't mean that hyperbolically. I actually mean it. You know, one of the, one of the most impactful situations that hap- happened to us was early days at Quest, where every penny counts. And we had a bar, uh, a batch that we were making. And we'd finally hired these three guys to be able to do it. While us three, me, my husband and the business partners were able to run the office. And so one day they're making a batch of bars and the guy comes in with like the worst horror look on his face. And he's like, I'm so sorry, but I've just messed up a batch of bars. And this guy thinks he's about to get fired because back then it was like one batch of bars was $5,000. And as you know, a startup that with $5,000, like that literally can put your business out of business. So it was a big deal. So I'm thinking like literally my house is on the line, our house is up for collateral. So I'm starting to panic because this is very early days. I don't quite have a growth mindset yet. I'm starting to panic thinking, how on earth are we going to make this money back? Are we about to lose our house? And my husband stands up and he's like, all right, let's just see what we got here. So we walk into the facility and there's these tubs just full of like these bars. And he's like, okay, I was making the peanut butter bar and I put in the peanut butter flour. I put in the peanut butter protein flour. I put in the the sweetener and then I put in the mixed berry flavoring from the next batch into the peanut butter. And he's like, I'm so sorry. I know I've ruined the batch. So we're wondering what we're going to do. We're like, okay, let's just try it. So trying to think about what are we going to do because we're about to lose $5,000. We all take a bite. And then all of a sudden, someone turns around and says, huh, you know, it kind of tastes like PB&J. And so with the wrong flavor where we'd put the berry into the peanut butter mix, we immediately were like, how can we turn this to our advantage? Let's wrap them in, in, in foil paper, nondescript. Let's put them in nondescript boxes. Let's now market it, put it on Facebook as a prototype. So immediately we put it up on Facebook. This is early days where that's where the, everyone was marketing very much, you know, just on Facebook. So we put it up on Facebook, prototype, only 200 boxes. Dude, we sold out in two hours. We had like our nutrition value. I was printing them on my Staples printer and we were just using the peanut butter ones because legally when you're selling food product, you have to supply nutrition value. But because the only thing that was different was the flavoring, the nutrition value was still the same. So we literally, we blanked, wrapped them, printed out the nutrition staples, put them in and shipped all 200 boxes. Before you knew it, our Facebook was blowing up. Everyone was trying them. Everyone was loving them. So now all the people that didn't get to buy the two, you know, the bars, were now they had like the serious FOMO. So they were like, when are you going to make them for us? Before we knew it, the demand was so huge. We got it into production within the next month and it became our biggest selling protein bar at the time. So we took this horrific, utter failure, rethought about it, used our mindset, saw the potential, took a chance, and 
it ends up being the most amazing lesson. And so you better believe every time I think about the fear of failing or falling on my face and not knowing what to do, I keep coming back to that story because it just reminds me that how I show up to a failure will dictate the result. How everyone shows up to a failure will dictate what that result ends up being. It's it's so interesting because it's a great story and you know, every, so many entrepreneurs, I'll say every entrepreneur, but so many entrepreneurs, myself included, have that fear of failure. It kind of never goes away. And on one hand, you could, one could just say, all right, I, I, I'm so fearful and become paralyzed and th- that adds badly. But the example you gave is a powerful example because it's learning how to, you know, acknowledge the fear and say, okay, you know, it's, it's take a step back. What's going on here? And then it's very hard to do in the moment, but try to give yourself that perspective and, and go back to, you know, go back to your memory and say, when has this happened before? Or let's take a step back. How mm-hmm. bad really is this? And then you try to work your way around it. But, you know, fear, fear can be powerful. It's the same thing with stress. Both are very powerful and you could harness it for good or it can destroy you. You know, so, something else you mentioned I thought was so interesting. You know, you talked about fear of what people are going to say, and you have this great chapter titled Validation is for Parking. I, I definitely <laughs> laughed when I saw that. Love, love, love that title. Can you unpack that one a bit? Validation is for Parking. Yeah, I think I spent so many years looking for external validation to feel good about myself. And so I think that was partly why I was stuck for eight years in a life that didn't really fulfill me because I was getting validation from my family because I was brought up Greek Orthodox. And so that belief was I would end up being married with children. So the validation that I was getting from my father about, yes, you know, you're doing the right thing from my culture, like all of that becomes something that I didn't realize that was keeping me stuck where I was. And I think that it happens to so many of us on so many um levels. So that kept me where I was. And then also, I think we very much hold, we will have an identity. And sometimes that identity, I call it the velvet handcuffs, because the identity of being a good Greek wife, right? Like that felt good. I'm a good Greek wife even though the actual life that led to wasn't satisfying. So now I was holding my identity to the external validation I was getting. And that can be so paralyzing it can keep us there because when you try new things the chance is high you're going to fail along the way you're going to have mishaps right so now if you are looking for external validation to make you feel good about yourself because that's where you get your validation from you can imagine why a lot of us don't take any risks because if you fail where are you going to get the pats on the back if you fail where people aren't going to give you the compliments anymore and maybe, like me, you f- don't feel good about yourself. So for me, I didn't feel good about myself. I didn't feel good about the way I looked. I didn't feel good about what I could bring to the table in my relationship. You know, so all of these things become a crutch and hiding the things I didn't feel good about. And now they're just masking. So now I'm not actually addressing the real problem. And so for me, I was using my identity as a way to keep going. Like, okay, I guess I'm a good Greek wife. And that gave me the temporary, you know, pats on the back. But it kept me there. 
So the, the, the whole chapter is about how do you break out of the identity you have with what you actually want in life? And does it align? And if not, how do you change that so that you seek validation in things that are adaptable? Because if you seek validation in just getting the pats on the back, you can understand why so many of us don't try new things. But if you get validation from yourself, I'm the type of person that shows up when I do the hard things. Oh, right. Now, by reframing where I get my validation from, I get it from myself, not from other people. And then reframing I get validation out of being the person that tries, not out of the person that succeeds. Now, what I've done is actually changed my identity and the way that I can pride myself and I can get bashed from left and right. I can fall on my face when trying new things and my validation doesn't get dented. My emotions don't get dented. I don't get derailed or off track. Because I feel good every step of the way. Because I'm like, yes, I fell on my face, but oh my God, I can't believe I got back up and still kept going. Well done, you. I'm my own cheerleader. And I think it's so dangerous giving your pom-poms to someone else. I love that. You mentioned your emotions. You talk about an interesting concept, emotional sobriety. Tell us more about emotional sobriety. Do you drink? Here and there, yes. Have you had alcohol before? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yes, yes. Way, way so too just, much a long time ago, but <laughs> okay. here and there I had a great, I had a great beer last night. So maybe if you're in the past, then maybe you know, right? You've had maybe one or two drinks more than you probably should. And the next day you wake up and you're like, oh God, I can't believe I said that. Oh my God, I can't believe I did that. How embarrassing. Like, did I really kiss the bouncer on the cheek on the way out of the club? Like things like that where you're like, oh, I think of that as like emotions. Emotion, how many times have we been, at least for me, um, hot-headed or got too upset over something and said something? The next day I was like, wow, that so wasn't me. Like I said something in the heated moment, but I wish I hadn't said it. So that's how where that analogy came from, emotional sobriety. And so I think of it like that. And I think of it as how do we get, how do we not let our emotions run wild so that we get to the point where we're out of character? Because when you're going for your goals, your dreams, when you're being challenged, when you're really facing things every single day, you're going to find that some people don't agree with you. You're going to find that some people upset you. You're going to find that some people are frustrating. And the question is, how do you deal with your emotions in those moments? Does it serve you or does it not? If it doesn't serve you, how do you emotionally regulate? Because let me tell you, flipping out at somebody you know, who let's say you want to do a business partnership with may not serve you. But sometimes it's hard going back to something you said so powerfully earlier. There's a big difference between wanting to do something and doing it. So there's a massive difference between not wanting to lose your shit in front of people and not losing your shit in front of people. So in that chapter, I really do break down like these are the tools that you can use to then step away and not have this emotional reaction. It isn't about saying, don't feel your emotions. I think emotions are very powerful. And I think that they are very, they're an amazing indicator to let us know when something's wrong in our lives, right? You get that gut feeling, that's an emotion. You know, you're feeling sad. Okay, well, why are you feeling sad? Is it maybe your hormones are out of whack? Is there maybe something in your life that you haven't addressed, right? Feelings can be amazing. 
they can also completely derail you where they've led you astray. And then in one moment you've lost your shit and the next day you cannot now repair that relationship. So emotional sobriety is absolutely how to keep calm in those situations so that you can be proud of the person you showed up to be. And is there one thing specifically that you found to be helpful in those moments where you feel like you're going to lose your shit? Yes. So I mentioned music. That's definitely one of them. Walking away. This becomes controversial, which is kind of weird that walking away is a controversial thing, but apparently it is. I just walk away. I, I don't know. I get pushed back a lot. So I'm like, fine. If, you, if staying in there serves you, again, I go to what are you trying to achieve and does it serve your goal? So for me, in those moments where I'm hot-headed and heated, I know I need to calm down. So Assess who you are and how you behave in those moments. I think normally it happens after the fact for me. So if you can replay just like a movie, rewind moments that you're embarrassed about, that you wish you hadn't have done what you did or said what you did, and replay. And start replaying where were the moments that you started to get triggered? Where were the moments that the red flags were coming up? For me, it's my face starts to get red. It's... I want to interrupt someone. That's a key. That's a red flag for me. Like if someone's coming at me and I'm finding myself wanting to interrupt them, it means that I'm getting defensive. So I've assessed myself. Like it is neither, it, no, know thyself. And so for me, knowing thyself means replaying situations and then saying, what could I have done differently? So being able to pinpoint those were got me to the conclusion that, ah, oh, Lisa, when you're in those moments, the only solution is walking away. And so what does that mean? I like to say, I never lie. But those are the moments that I would have to, I would lie if I had to get out of that situation. I'm so sorry. I'm desperate to use the restroom. Or, oh my God, I just got an emergency call. Whatever. Because I know I've been there too many times to know when I am heated, I'm going to pretend probably say something I will regret. So now what I've got is things that I've put in place so that I don't end up there again. It's identifying those red flags and then saying, next time I find myself, this red flag waves, I'm going to do X. When this happens, I'm going to do Y. And again, go and game plan. Because for me, I can let my emotions run away with me. But if I've got a game plan, I just keep going back to it. Lisa, you said that when you start to feel like you want to interrupt people, you promised yourself you would walk away. You promised yourself you would use this excuse, right? Come up with the game plan and then assess. Did you do it? Did it work? How did you feel afterwards? And then rinse and repeat and everything becomes an improvement. I don't hold myself to perfection. I hold myself to, am I the type of person that learns from an experience and progressively gets better? So that if I end up losing my shit and I didn't mean to, and I was like, oh my God, I was so close. Like I thought I did so well until they said this thing. I go, cool, Lisa, you're doing good. Next time you're going to get a shorter period of time that you're able to, you know, equalize your emotions. You're going to get a shorter period of time where you're going to notice it and walk away. And I just refine it over time. It's great advice. And look, I, it comes down to knowing your triggers and being self-aware. Mm -hmm. Again, so hard to do when you're in the moment, but you know, it takes a lot of practice to be perfect. Yeah. So coming back to your journey, it'd be remiss not to ask you, and you talk about this in the book extensively, your health journey. And 
ignoring some pretty serious gut issues, which, you know, manifested into something I've, I've heard of dysbiosis, but not catastrophic dysbiosis. So tell us what happened. Yeah, it was a very powerful lesson. And one of these that I always think about how can, I think it's Tony Robbins, how can the worst thing that's ever happened become the best thing? And it really then, me, uh, to me, it really hit home about how you think about everything matters. And so I was on a journey, we were building Quest. And at the time it was where the messaging was grind, grind, grind. Entrepreneurship is all about how many hours do you put in? And like the more hours I put in, the better I felt about myself, you know, because I felt like I was getting external validation, going back to validation, you know, it's like, oh, wow, you work 17 hours a day, God. You know, it's like, yeah, like prided myself on being the person that worked a lot. And that was detrimental to my health. And along the way, I just kept ignoring all the signs that kept saying, hey, your health is struggling, your health is struggling. And I just kept ignoring it because I thought the end goal was success. And I kept focusing on as long as I get successful, that's what matters. As long as I get su successful. And how can I be successful if I'm going to bed early? And how can I be successful? Right? All the voices in my head that were then shutting down all the flags that were waving when it came to my health. To the point where Quest became a billion-dollar company, our dream, our dream actually came true. So my husband and I, in the really hard days of building Quest when we didn't have anything, we would drive around Beverly Hills, dreaming of the day we could buy a house in Beverly Hills. And I used to say, all right, babe, when we do, I'm going to do it just like a 90s video. Like I, I'm such a like a hip-hop fan that I was like, you know, I'm going to do a 90s hip-hop video by the waterfall in our Beverly Hills mansion. And I'm going to, you know, pour Dom Perignon down my body. It's going to be like, just like the hip-hop videos. And what actually happened is we actually got to be a billion-dollar company and we actually got the house in Beverly Hills with a waterfall. It was like the freaking dream come true. And I think I'm on cloud nine. And the day we got the house, we got the keys, we got the bottle of Dom Perignon, I'm actually under the waterfall and I take a gulp of the champagne. And that was the day that my gut, I, I, I liken it to, it erupted. And from that day on, I couldn't eat like a normal person. I, in hindsight, in seeing what actually had happened, it was, I had an unhealthy relationship with food. I thought only protein mattered and I cut out carbs and fat and everything else because I was trying to be as skinny as possible because I had a very unhealthy relationship. I then was getting sick because 70% of your immune system is carried in your gut. So I wasn't, I wasn't getting healthy. My doctor was giving me antibiotics. So over a period of 10 years, I wasn't replenishing my gut and I was just taking an obscene amount of antibiotics towards the end because I was getting so sick all the time. And it got to the point that my gut gave up and it happened to have been the day that I was celebrating and it happened to have been a bottle of champagne. And when I say that day changed everything, it changed everything. I couldn't, I could barely eat for over a year, over a year. My hair was falling out. My nails were brittle. I couldn't stand up for longer than five minutes at the time. And, you know, it just, it became all consuming and in that moment, it was like, wow, I've been fighting my whole life to be successful, to have the dream house. And it took my health going to shit to make me realize money doesn't matter. It took that to make me realize the only thing that matters is your health. Because what followed, as you know, if you don't eat, if you're not giving yourself the nutrients, if you can't sleep properly, 
I had like my um, mental clarity was gone. I was having brain fog. I was having emotions. I was crying at random things that never made me cry. And so now I wasn't feeling confident. You want to talk about not being able to show up for yourself. So it became this like really downward spiral of, you know, this one thing happened and had this crazy knock on effect. But now where the best thing that ever happened was I waited and waited for doctors to fix me. I kept waiting. For two years, I was going to all the best doctors, waiting for antibiotics, or not antibiotics, but waiting for the right pill. And then eventually, I started to process that I realized, wow, is this because I took too many antibiotics? And then immediately, I was like, well, the doctor shouldn't have given them to me. And as those words were coming out of my mouth, I realized, why am I giving my power away? I'm saying the doctor shouldn't have given me antibiotics. Yes, he probably shouldn't have. But when he said, you know, I probably shouldn't give you this many. Did I ever ask why? Did I ever go home and research myself? The doctor didn't force them down my throat. I took them. So now going to, how do I take ownership over this? I'm, I'm saying it's everyone else's fault. But I'm literally not taking any ownership. The second I started to realize, wow, am I sick because of me? Most people, some people may feel worse about themselves, right? Maybe like now you're blaming yourself. Now you're shaming yourself for being sick. At that point, I just found it the most empowering thought process because I was like, if I can own it, then maybe now I have the power to change it. And I took that mindset. I took that perspective. And immediately I said, if this was all my fault, how can I fix myself? And I stopped listening to doctors and I started taking an account of every single thing I ate, how I slept, how I drank, what I drank, when I had a bowel movement, how many hours I slept, how I felt the next day. I took so full ownership of what was going in my body and how I was showing up the next day that I started to realize that even though the doctors told me, actually, it turns out you're allergic to beef. My food diary kept saying the only time that I felt amazing was when I ate fatty beef and so for the when I was listening to the doctors and I was eating raw vegetables and cutting beef out and I was feeling worse about myself when I started to notice in my own diary with my own responsibilities because I took an I did an aura ring I now took responsibility of finding out how many hours I was sleeping I put in a um, continuous glucose monitor because I was taking ownership over what I was eating and how that was affecting my blood levels and what I started to realize is I was feeling tired because I was waking up in the middle of the night and I realized I was waking up in the middle of the night because I was having blood glucose crashes so I was dropping to like 50 or below in my blood glucose in the middle of the night and when I was dropping that low I would look at my aura ring and I would notice I would wake up so just by taking ownership I realized I had to now start adding slightly different foods into my diet so that I wasn't crashing so that I was sleeping well so that I was waking up the next day with an appetite And once I started to literally just take full ownership over every little thing I was doing and how I was showing up, I have now been able to change my health and pivot. And now I'm able to say that in the last two years since COVID, I've had two health relapses. And just to give you perspective, before that, I was having probably relapses three to four times a day where my gut was in such distress that I couldn't talk or stand up. 
Wow. Wow. Amazing story. I'm glad you're doing better. Thank you. I'm going to start going back to the beginning of the story <laughs> where you had this picture of success and, you know, the house, the waterfall, the champagne, we all have that picture of success. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, I think it's pretty clear what, how you thought about success then. I'm curious, how do you think about success now? Very differently. So perfect example is when I learn a lesson, I really make an appoint to tattoo that lesson on my brain so I can never forget it. Because I was the one that worked myself into the ground and worked that hard. Now, look, I did it because I wanted the company to succeed. So I take ownership over that. But now, let's say with this book promotion, this is the first time I've ever promoted the book. It's exhausting. Like, it's exhausting. It's like writing the book is like 10%. Promoting the book is 90% of the work. And so I'm learning all along the way. Now, I have a goal. I, you know, know what I want to do with the book. I know how many people I want it to reach and how much I want it to impact people. And yet, in saying that, I know the most important thing is my health. So what I've done is before I even wrote the book, I said, what am I going to do to make sure that I protect what I think is the, no the number one thing that is important to me? And it's my health. Because I made the promise to myself when I was that sick, on my birthday, where literally I could, I mean, I'm literally like, nibbling at a piece of chicken on my birthday and everyone else is having cake and celebrating I swore to myself I would never let my weight or my physical appearance dictate my health again and that was what it was I was cutting out all these foods because I thought I was should be as skinny as possible and I was getting accolades for how I looked so I just swore I'd never do that again and I would never ever exchange my health for success in my career ever again and so with this book, it's exactly what I'm doing. I, no matter what, no matter what, will go to bed at 9 p.m. I won't change my book, my deadline, my sleep deadline. And I will, no matter what, stop working at 8 p.m. I need an hour. Now, look, I get up at like 7 and I work from there the moment I get up. But I know the things, and in fact, sorry, that's one thing. So I will go to bed at 9, no matter how busy I am. Even if you told me, Lisa, your book is going to tank. Unless you push your book, unless you push your sleep deadline and you don't get your one hour at the end of every day, I would say, fine, then let it tank. Because I've been there, I've done that, and I've made a promise to myself. So I go back to everything we've been talking about is my emotions want to lead me astray. My emotions want to say, well, Lisa, you're a worse. Lisa, you said you were going to get in your times number one. Lisa, you're not willing to give up your hour. Like my emotions will definitely keep trying to talk me out of it. But I have made a commitment to myself. And that is, if I cannot show up to be healthy, I shouldn't be talking about this book and radical confidence in the first place. And I have to commit to myself before I commit to anyone else. So that's how I'm doing it. Every day I just go, I know my, my sleep deadline. I know what time, I know I need an hour to myself. And one more thing I will add, I know that I need to eat dinner in peace. So even I will cancel meetings I will get off a phone call early if I have to, but I will walk away, I will make my dinner and I will shut the world off for like 20 minutes to eat dinner. And those are the things that I've found that has allowed me to walk that type rope. I can't do that for too long. So once the book promotion's over, I will go back to not even working as many hours as I am. 
But I know that having these rules in place has allowed me to push hard, feel good about myself, feel good about pushing myself because I still push. I'm not that person that's like, well, now I just like relax and sit back. No, no. It's a dance. You know, you've got Mm -hmm. to to achieve anything. You must work hard, but it's tricky. You have to know how far you can push it without crossing over that line. And And once you cross over, you know, you put your health at risk. It's not good for whatever you're doing, but it's a fine line. You got to push it. You can't just sit in the couch and manifest, so to speak. Exactly. You have to do the work. You got to put in the time. Every entrepreneur I've known, you you have Mm -hmm. to work your ass off. You need an element of luck, but you need to know when to back off. Yeah. And that's very, that's the key is also then giving yourself grace when the moments where maybe you've pushed yourself too far. So I, I because I naturally go into beating myself up. Oh my God, Lisa, you knew that was going to happen. You knew, right? And then now the negative voice doesn't exactly help you either. Just makes it worse. So I also, the other tactic that I put in place is giving myself grace when I find myself there again and just say, all right, you're here again. Okay, where are the things that you can do better next time? Hey, you told yourself that you were going to leave yourself an hour. You actually didn't stick to it. You only gave yourself 30 minutes. Don't worry, but tomorrow you're going to keep your promise to yourself. And then I get back on track. So that's also another very important thing. I love it. In closing, what advice do you have for someone out there who's got an ambitious goal they want to accomplish, whether it's with their own business or Personally, it's an ambitious goal, but just in general, someone who's a goal setter and who like setting goals and wants to accomplish them, what advice do you have for someone? Make sure you put in tiny little actionable steps all along the way, because so many things are going to come their way that aren't going to work out, that are going to maybe deter you. And having these little wins to me is so powerful. Like I would do a little win. And obviously it depends on what your goal is. But even let's say, for instance, your goal is to go to the gym consistent. or let's say you want to, in fact, put on five pounds of muscle. Okay, well, maybe your first little goal is I put sneakers by my bed and that's it. And I put them on the next morning. Maybe it's not even going to the gym, right? Because maybe right now, even just stepping foot in the gym is a very anxious for them, for you or whoever, you know, so put in small little goals that lead up to your big audacious goals. That to me will keep you on track in making sure that you're always taking that step forward. Then just embrace every so often, you may take two steps back and only one step forward. That's okay. If you still really believe in your goal. Now, the last thing I will say is sometimes your goal and what it will take to get there doesn't actually align with the life you want. So some people may say, I want to build a massive company or I want to have five pounds more of muscle. All right. I totally understand. That may be really exciting. Now, let's say three weeks in, you realize you have to get up at seven in the morning. You realize you actually have to make now your own food. So now all the spare time that you had hanging out with your partner, hanging out with your mates, going to a club, getting drunk. Now you have to shift your behavior. And now you're like, well, screw this. I don't know. Like, Just don't, with no judgment, like don't judge yourself for not doing it. But I would say then sit down with open eyes and say, I told myself I wanted to gain five uh, five pounds of muscle. I though don't like getting up at 7 a.m. And I hate not going out with my friends on Saturday. I don't want a life where I'm not going out with my friends on Saturday. Amazing. 
then just admit that what it's going to take for you to reach your goal, you're not willing to do. And now that admitting it just allows you to not have any regrets. So in 10 years, when you say, yeah, I was going to put on five pounds of muscle, you can just turn around and say, and I decided not to because it didn't live, it didn't fulfill the life I wanted. Instead of beating yourself up and telling yourself how freaking lazy you were, that you couldn't be bothered and oh my God, how lazy are you to not go to the gym consistently? Which that thinking is gonna is destructive. Well, our audience is a health forward one. So I know all of our listeners are gonna put on that five pounds of muscle if they, <laughs> if they want to. We'll exactly. <laughs> well, we'll close there. Lisa, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. 